Good evening, and uh, it is the third Friday of the month, and that means it's time for Matinee Minutia, the show about film and television trivia. And tonight, it is our second episode of the new year, so we have rung it in, and uh, we are getting together here in the beautiful historical marionette theater and to my side here is my co-host my partner in crime mr toppy smelly howdy dj a fine friday night it is it is and it looks like old man winter has dropped by outside i'm not sure how your drive-in was but uh i had to about dust off my windshield yeah, yeah, it was uh, frightful, just a little bit, a little skitty, uh, as they say. I'm so glad that I've gotten used to wearing thermals. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, inside the theater, uh, we, we need them. Oh, boy, do we. Now, uh, you know, we actually have a little escape coming up here, so we don't have to... Uh, you know, uh, suffer in the cold for too long. I hear it. I have it on good authority. It's a little bit milder where we're going to be going in a few weeks. Uh, you want to tell the folks where that is? Well, that would be Maryland, which uh, we always hope is a few a few degrees warmer. It probably will be. I always remember the first time we went there, DJ, you and I, and Billy and, and Tommy. Uh, it was like 70 degrees there. Uh, while back home, you know, there was snow on the ground. So that was very dramatic. Um, it'd be nice if this year maybe we have something equally dramatic. But uh, Maryland, yes, indeed, the site of Farpoint, the science fiction convention. This is going to be our fourth time. It is. And uh, this time we're in for a treat because they have some recent sci-fi celebrities there. It's going to have uh, Mary Chipo, who is the actress who plays the uh, the Klingon Empress in the new Star Trek Discovery series. Mm. And, uh, they've got a couple of others there. They've got an actor from Scott Bakula's Star Trek, which was Enterprise, and uh, there's an actress from both Deep Space Nine and The Orville. She plays the Doctor on that. So, a good time should be in store for all. Sounds good to me. So tonight we are getting together and we have a little bit of nostalgia for yours truly. This is uh, something that came down the pike a little after Mr. Smelly was uh, off from graduation. But we're going to take a, a turn back in time in a moment here. Um so this is kind of a, a childhood favorite. And, you know, I I happen to notice our showgirl, Gertie, coming in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she seems to be dressed for the occasion. She's in her pajamas. Well, I, I thought that maybe is what it was. I wasn't sure, DJ. I hope you're right. I hope it was pajamas. <laughs> it was pajamas. See? I've got the little footy pajamas. Isn't it cute? Oh, those must be comfy. I know that that's how I like to watch my cartoons when I was a little tyke. Well, that's what I thought. I thought I'd play along with you lunkheads tonight. (laughs) I mean, cartoons to me was Betty Boop 
and Popeye. You know what I mean? So I don't know what this clunker is you're watching. Anyways, I'll intro it for you if you want me to. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, you get those feety pajamas down to the stage, miss, and uh, we'll yeah. get things underway. Sounds good. Uh, uh, we'll give her a few seconds. And uh, you ready, Gertie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go. Alrighty then, on a ski trip to the Himalayas, an alien virus threatens the lives of former test pilot Jack Burnett's Burnett's family, and he must reveal his secret, forcing everyone to undergo this undergo the same transformation that gave him superhero-like abilities. Witness this modern family as they fight together to keep the technology out of the wrong hands. Grab your feety pajamas like me and a bowl of your favorite sugary cereal. It's time for the Bionic Six. Hit it, boys. What do you get when you take a dash of the silver screen, a pinch of golden oldies, and a smidgen of screaming? It's time for Matinee Minutia with your host, DJ and Toppy. Well, hey there, folks, and welcome to the beautiful historical marionette theater and uh, we are gathered together tonight by a great love of film and television trivia. And just as our senior showgirl mentioned, tonight is a special occasion because we are taking a peek back into childhood to some memories of yours truly. And we're going to talk about a cartoon, a action series, and uh, it is called Bionic 6. Now, before we actually talk about the show, we talk about what was going on in the world at that time. And this is the world in 1987. Okay, so in 87, American Motors Corporation, AMC, they were later bought by uh, Chrysler, but uh, they had those cute little cars, the Gremlin and the Hornet. Well, that's the year they were acquired by Chrysler. It was 87. And uh, also in 87, uh, televangelist Jim Baker, he resigned from the PTL. He got it caught with his hands in more than just a cookie jar. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, during a visit to Berlin, Ronald Reagan challenged Gorbachev and made his infamous speech of tear down this wall. Uh, and uh, 87, well, it wasn't a good year to be a Bible thumper on TV because Pat Robertson, well, he announced his candidacy for pre- Republican presidential nomination. Um, and the first national coming out day was celebrated in 87. So, you know, more than a decade after Stonewall, we finally got a coming out day. Huh. And uh, lastly, in 87, uh, there was a little, uh, speaking of cartoons, a little hijinks in the animal kingdom. A squirrel closed down the NASDAQ stock exchange when it burrowed through a telephone line. <laughs> Whoopsie. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the tin cans and the string, they had a little snag there. 
Right, right, indeed. So we'll cover also celebrity voice. In 1987, we got that there, uh, Keisha, the the rapper, and also Blake Lively, an actress, Hilary Duff. She's a singer-songwriter, actress. How about Zac Efron, actor, radio, uh, Kevin Jonas, singer, and also another singer, Aaron Carter. They all were boithed in 1987. And now, uh, some of you may recognize those names. Zach Efron, he, well, he's the guy that has those splendid abs. And uh, Kevin Jonas, he's in the Jonas Brothers, who are on and off a boy band. And uh, a few of them had some sing- uh, solo careers. And Aaron Carter is someone that was on, I want to say, it was either American Idol or The Voice. But he was one of those folks that got to be one of the finalists and he's launched his career from that platform. All right. Very good. So Bionic Six is a cartoon, uh, 1987 DJ. What other cartoons might we have seen had we had a little television set back then? Oh boy. Well, there were some weird goings on in the eighties on TV and, uh, it's no surprise. I mean, they were hiding the sugar, in the breakfast cereal, like nobody's business. And, um, <laughs> oh, bye. So we, uh, I, now I, I'm pretty sure that by the, when time you were a little tyke, they probably weren't afraid of red food dye and, and things, were they? No, no, uh, we weren't thinking about such things back then. <laughs> I just remember that when I was little. Now, if you can imagine, folks, uh, poor Toppy, he's, he's going to be in that uh, car trip with me next month and uh well from time to time i've known to get hopped up on coffee and um when i was little i was not allowed to have red food dye and Mm. uh, that included (laughs) kool-aid but in 87 some of the cartoons that came out for the little tykes was a little thing called my pet monster Mm -hmm. Uh, quite a few things in those days had merchandising and of course some things were created just to merchandise and my pet monster seemed to have been one of those because um that was one of those stuffed animals that was big enough you could hug it and it could put its arms around you but it was a little creepy it had uh you know like a, a big nose beady black eyes and i think it even had like little devil kind of horns but mm-hmm. uh, some of the other cartoons that came out now my pet monster was a cartoon there was also the adventures of Teddy Ruxpin. Now that of course is so iconic because Teddy Ruxpin was a household name. That was that toy that you could put a cassette in and it would read to your children. Ah, that's right. It was, um, did it move? I mean, it's mouth moved. Did anything else move? I want to, <laughs> I want to say kind of like data on Star Trek. He he blinked his eyes so that he looked real. So okay. uh, I think Teddy Ruxpin blinked occasionally, but if you think about it, um I I want to say Teddy Ruxpin was probably the inspiration for the future nanny cams. 
maybe you know it was kind of a babysitter and they just thought hey we had this thing that would read to our kids what if we put a camera in one of those that nobody suspects the teddy bear yeah uh, totally weird the next cartoon uh, uh dj it was based on a, a live tv show that involved a, another kind of puppet <laughs> what was that one Oh, well, this one involved an alien, and uh, this was probably one of a kind at the time. I mean, a few years before, you had Mork and Mindy, so of course you got the idea of an alien in a sitcom. But then there was an alien that was a puppet, basically. Now, he wasn't really a puppet, because there was actually an actor inside the suit, a little person, and uh, this was called Alf. And after the live-action sitcom went off the air... They continued the adventures in a cartoon form. They called Elf the animated series. And the, the thing about that show was that, well, after the sitcom was over, Elf went home. So this was about his adventures on his home planet, Melmac. Yes, yes. Just to um, uh, a little little correction about the Elf TV show, DJ, is uh, if they wanted to have Elf running around the set, that was a little person in a costume. But any close-up where you're basically looking at Alf above the waist, that was a two-man puppet uh, operating. No, no one inside it, but uh, uh, it's it's a mode of, of puppetry that was made famous by uh, um, the folks over there behind the Muppets. It was... Uh, one puppet controlled by two people. Oh. Uh, one person did one hand and the mouth, and then a second person did the other hand. Ah. So there were a handful of other shows that were new in 87, uh, all, of course, cartoons, and we'll get those quick through quickly here. There is a series called Brave Star, and that was basically a futuristic Western and, uh, of course, then there was DuckTales. Now, that was Disney's effort to continue the adventures of Donald Duck because now his nephews have gone to live with Uncle Scrooge. <laughs> and uh, even today, actually, there has been a resurgence in nostalgia for 80s pop culture because, of course, uh, people like me who grew up in the 80s are now parents and some of them grandparents uh, yes, yes. So they've they've made a new version of DuckTales. Mm -hmm. Now the last one we have here started out as a independent comic book that rose out of obscurity, uh, done by two people. It was black and white, and it was uh, you know nobody thought it was going to do nothing, but it started to catch on. It was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Somebody came along to these two comic book nuts and said, um, I'm thinking like a cartoon of this would be really cool. And lo and behold, <laughs> DJ, what did we have? A cartoon of... Oh, the, the turtles and uh, they were in the sewers and... They had um, pizza all the time, and they were on skateboard because that was the cool thing to do. Right, and it just skyrocketed. There were several movies that were live action, uh, full-grown men in turtle costumes that I think it was revived. or rest I, I don't know the whole story, but uh, I, I, I have a feeling to this day there's, there's somewhat of, I mean, 
nobody's forgotten these Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. No, they have not. And I want to say that one of the people who did a voice on the uh, original Turtles may have been Patty Duke's own son, Sean Astin. I I know not, but uh, I'll you know could be. Um, that all brings us around to the Bionic Six. Yeah. All of these cartoons that we've just gone through are all things that I missed. And I'll tell you why, DJ. Uh, 74 and 75 were really the last two years that I was watching Saturday morning cartoons. And you have to keep in mind, folks, that there there were no cartoon networks or anything. And unless you were watching something maybe a little older that was syndicated and it might be on in the afternoon when you got home from school, these new cartoons were, were made for what at the time was a yearly ritual Saturday morning cartoons. All three networks played uh, these things. And um, the last ones that I remember happened to be a couple of years when live action became uh, something the networks were trying to get more viewers rather than cartoons. And the last two years, I saw Land of the Lost, um, which was this very weird mix of anim- of, of uh, stop motion animation and puppetry and and uh, in a, a prehistoric land. And then the following year, <laughs> the never to be forgotten combo of the mighty Isis and Captain Marvel. They were live action superhero and superhero and. <laughs> Uh, that would have been like the last year that I was watching Saturday morning uh, cartoons. And uh, so all of the, the above cartoons we talked about, I, I just knew nothing about, didn't see them. Bionic 6 included. I'll tell you a little bit about what it was, though. Uh, it was an American-Japanese animated television series. And the plot was, in the near future... Uh, we're not sure when, but it was supposedly after 1999, that iconic year. Oh, why today? <laughs> yes, exactly. And there was this uh, professor. See, his name was Dr. Amadeus Sharp. He was a PhD. He was head of the special projects labs. And he created a new form of technology to augment humans through bionics. And his subject... Uh, his very first subject was Jack Bennett, a test pilot who secretly acted as Sharp's field agent once he was Bionic, and his name was Bionic One, and he became kind of a well-known superhero. But his identity was a secret even to his own family, except I think his wife knew. And uh, and uh, then uh, uh, Bionic One uh, Jack Bennett took his family on a ski, ski vacation in the Himalayas when, God, just coincidentally, there happened to be an alien spacecraft that triggers an avalanche that buries the entire family, coincidentally exposing them to the unusual radiation of a mysterious buried object. Well, folks, uh, for all of those things to combine, what are the chances? But, uh, 
Jack, because he's bionic, frees himself, uh, but his family, well, they've really been hurt in this uh, uh, avalanche, and they're they're all in a, a comatose state, somehow supported by this mysterious buried object. Um, now, uh, theorizing that Jack's bionics protected him from the radiation, Professor Sarp implants bionic technolo technology into the others, the entire family, awakening them. And there you go. Now the entire family is bionic, and they operate incognito as a publicity-lauded uh, team, uh, a public, publicly-lauded team of adventuring superheroes forever then, and hence known as the Bionic Six. So there you go. Let's play that little theme song, DJ. We are a family. I fight for them. They fight for me. As close as we can be. I am the mountain. So deep in the sea. A family brought together by faith and given superpowers through the miracle of modern science. <laughs> DJ, and you happen to be wearing the Bionic 6 logo right on your T-shirt. I sure am. I was lucky enough that uh, my hubby, who's worked a little in theater and costuming, happened to have a day where everything seemed to be yellow that he was finding. And he said to himself, that's school bus yellow. That's perfect. <laughs> so we got that logo and pinned it right on there for you. Good. <laughs> Excellent. Um, now, um, let's talk a little bit about the cast. Uh, there's a lot of them, but uh, what do we know about them? Let's start with Bungie. Okay. Well, uh, Bungie, who uh, once he becomes bionic through that fateful ski trip, he, uh, he adopts the code name of Karate One. And Bungie is... Uh, his uh, voice is done by a voice actor named Brian Tochi. Now, Brian Tochi is is a Los Angeles-born man of East uh, East Asian descent, and he's known for roles in the '80s during uh, the Revenge of the Nerds films. He was also in Police Academies three and four, and then later on, he was host of a CBS talent show for young people. It was called Razzmatazz, and he replaced. Rocky Horror Pictures own Barry Bostwick, who had hosted it in an earlier incarnation. Mm. Okay, playing the voice of Dr. Amadeus Sharp was voice actor Alan Oppenheimer. Now, I did not recognize his voice, but he uh, was most well known for his role of Rudy Wells on The Six Million Dollar Man TV show and The Bionic Woman. TV show 
And that sort of introduced the world to the whole idea of bionics in pop culture. And, uh, and Rudy Wells was the scientist responsible for making uh, this man and woman into a bionic man and woman. And also, Alan Oppenheimer is known for performing the voice of Skeletor on He-Man. Oh, now also a little bit of trivia about that, Toppy. Um, Hubby had whispered in my ear that Alan Oppenheimer isn't the only actor to play Rudy Wells. Kind of like uh, a few months back, Aunt Tudor in our chat room told us that uh, there was more than one actress who played Gladys Kravitz on Bewitched. That's true. There was a another actor whose name I've forgotten uh, that started out as Rudy Wells. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Alan Oppenheimer was the second Rudy Wells. They didn't resemble each other at all. Uh, but uh, there you go. You know, sometimes they replace husbands on TV shows and sometimes they just to uh, sub- replace the genius scientist. <laughs> right. Now, on the Bionic 6, DJ, there was a villain. And uh, who was that? Oh, well, of course, just like any good... Uh, Shakespeare style story, the villain of this uh, series was none other than Dr. Scarab. And now the reason why it's uh, a regular, um, you know, story plot line is that he was Dr. Sharp's brother. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) And uh, Dr. Scarab was voiced by Jim McGeorge, who's a voice actor who did a lot of work with Hanna-Barbera in the 80s. So it was always kind of a, you know, an extra sort of character, not uh, a lead character. But in the 60s, he voiced characters in a Laurel and Hardy based cartoon and Mm -hmm. in real life. He was said to have bared a striking resemblance to a slen- to the slender Stan Laurel of Laurel and Hardy. Ah, and both of us were talking the other night about the voice that Jim McGeorge did for Dr. Scarab. And both of us thought that he seemed to be trying to channel the actor George C. Scott. And, uh, I mean, you listened to him and... And he sounds just like him. Oh, yeah. And some of you may real recognize George C. Scott for his iconic portrayal of General Patton in the film Patton. Right. And, you know, let's just say later in life, he may or may not have done The Exorcist 3. But that's a different story. <laughs> uh, well, at least it wasn't Jaws 3D, right? Rightio. So uh, we also had uh, an associate uh, villain of Dr. Scarab, Madam O, and that was the actress Jennifer Darling. So on screen, uh, you would have seen her uh, once again uh, on the $6 million uh, man program, and she portrayed Oscar Goldman assistant Peggy Callahan. Um, I must say, uh, I do not remember her. I do not remember an assistant to Oscar Goldman, but we'll take we'll take this research um, first oh, word. Okay, well, I will give you a long and short of that, Toppy. She was the actress who first got to be a fembot. <gasps> oh, but, she was, oh, okay. 
she she bears a likeness to Sandy Duncan in some ways, in that she's petite and soft spoken. Mm-hmm. I think the Fembots came along uh, on the Bionic Woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Six Million Dollar Man, Steve Austin, he faced some robots earlier, but I do believe the, the Fembots were invented to to fight Jamie Summers. I love the fembots, kids. Oh, you know, and uh, this is where our our slight uh, difference in the big brother and little brother comes in handy because my memory of Six Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman was later on when it was in reruns, so I don't have those finer details right on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, anyways, uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, um, we had uh, Alan Oppenheimer, uh, who was associated with the television series Six Million Dollar Man, and and now Jennifer Darling. Um, and all I can assume is that because this show was called The Bionic Six, the producers just thought, wouldn't it be clever if we got somebody? from those uh, live action bionic shows and and they did so uh let's talk about who produced this uh cartoon dj who who was that well right well uh the parent company of bionic six was an animation house based in japan and uh in their um genesis they were called tms which is tokyo movie shinsa and they were later on acquired by nbc universal now tms is one of the oldest anime studios in Japan. They were best known for having produced numerous anime franchises, such as Sonic X, which was based on the Sega video game. They also did a series called Little Nemo Adventures in Slumberland. And I remember that uh, it was, a. I, I don't remember it having a very long run, but basically it's kind of like Peter Pan and the boy got around when he uh on his bed that floated in the sky when right. he went into dreams uh, by the way then the the origin of little nemo in slumberland is that it was a very early uh comic book strip in the newspapers and the name of the artist who invented him is escaping me but they were very very inventive cartoon uh, a very very visually inventive comic strip um that that really caught people's imagination because little nemo would go to sleep and and then in his dreams he'd be transported to strange worlds that were visually you know striking and it was very popular in the newspapers that's little nemo in slumberland oh i wish i could remember the artist but i can't and uh, tms also did some iconic uh comic book style characters toppy do you know what some of those were mm. well um i'm not sure of um comic book I, I i really don't know you tell me Okay, well, I'll give you a big hint. Michael Keaton played him on screen before uh, when it was turned into live action in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Beetlejuice? No. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking uh, uh, I don't know. The Dark Knight? Oh, okay. 
Batman. And this was Batman, the animated series. So I think this was the first time a cartoon was done after the iconic 60s series that was live action. Oh, well, you mean of Batman? Is it? Or no, oh, no, no. There were there were many others. Oh, okay. Well, this one was um, iconic because of the the animation style. Right. Very this, different. Yeah, this was the first Batman that was wildly different than what anybody had seen before in the cartoons. It had a very distinctive style, all its own, um, and uh, yeah. So that's that's how. It was very different. And the stories were different. They mm-hmm. they were much more sophisticated than the older Batman cartoons. Hmm. So I would venture to guess then that it wasn't really a kid's cartoon. Oh, it was. It was. Ad- adults could certainly appreciate it more more about it. Uh, young adults and adults could uh-huh. certainly uh, watch it and be uh, as equally entertained as young kids. And uh, also TMS, they they were kind of, uh, well, an outsourcing firm in a sense because they produced some things that uh, were credited to other people. Now, they did Animaniacs, which everybody associates with Warner Brothers, and they did DuckTales, which was one of those shows that was new in 87 when Bionic 6 came out. Everyone thinks that it was Disney. Well, they may have written stories, but TMS, they did the animation. And then there was Tiny Toon Adventures, which was kind of a, a younger version of the uh, the Merry Melodies, Warner Brothers, um, you know, uh, Bugs Bunny, because everybody had a younger version of themselves in that. And then uh, Disney's Gummy Bears was done by TMS. Now, Gummy Bears is a personal favorite. Maybe partly to do with that red dye that I wasn't supposed to have. Oh, because, maybe. Because the uh, the characters in Gummy Bears, they bounced around when they drank a red juice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. We'll talk about the, the director of uh, Bionic 6. It was Osamu Dezaki. And he started out as a man- man- manga artist uh, while still in high school. And in 1963, he went to work for Mushi Production, and that was founded as a rival to own to the uh, owner of the Godzilla Legacy. Uh, how do you pronounce that? Towel? Towel? It's Toei. Toei. All right. Um, uh, also, the music was by Steve Rucker. He was a per- percussionist, uh, drummer, and he was most well known for being uh, in the Bee Gees. And uh, currently, uh, the drum set studios director at Frost School of Music at the University of Miami. Um, and also, I'll just mention this briefly: um, when production of a cartoon like this starts, the first thing that happens are sketches. Um, because it's got to be sold, and somebody has to start making it look like something. And one of the first people they brought in was a comic book artist named Mike Vosberg, who wasn't exactly the, the most popular comic book artist out there, but he was a working artist, the most notably known for doing the Savage She-Hulk in the late 70s. And um, 
that was for Marvel Comics Group. Anyways, he uh, he got involved in this production, and he was uh, the person who just started sketching the characters and uh, showing like what they would look like and and what little clever things differentiated them, and uh, and and so. Uh, so he designed the look of all of the major characters. Let's now talk about the look of the cartoon. Mm-hmm. Um, in this day and age, a whole lot of the cartoons that were out there were being outsourced to mainly Japan. And they were frankly doing a much better job than American cartoon producers. Can you picture DJ, uh, the super friends, Mm -hmm. but had Batman, Superman, wonder woman, the wonder twins. I don't know who all Scooby do anyways. I'm not sure, but picture in your mind, what that looked like. Okay. They were these simplified drawings that were limited in their animation. In other words, you might see a close-up of Superman and his eyes might blink and his mouth would go ba 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 and you would hear him say something. And when he had to move, when any character had to move, you know, not a, a great amount of fluidity, but mostly the the, the, the they were very uh Lacking in detail. Um, now, think of the Bionic Six. Detail all over the place. Intense backgrounds, detailed backgrounds. The costumes, detailed. The everything was detailed. There were lines all over the place being animated. How did they do this? I frankly don't know, but Japan was damn good at it. (laughs) And one of the things about making cartoons for TV was that they they were expensive. Uh, You know, let's go back to Pinocchio or Snow White. Lavish animation. Um, Drawings made up for, uh, you know... um, (laughs) 16 or 18 drawings made up for one second of film. Well, when they were starting to make cartoons for TV, they couldn't afford to do that. It had to be affordable. So they came up with all these ways of doing limited animation. And Bionic 6 was much more than that. And most, a lot of the cartoons were using this animation style that was developed in Japan as far back as Gigantor and Speed Racer. Um, it had a look all to its own. And, and it was just better, better than anything any American producers of animation were doing. And also, you know, we can only speculate, DJ, why it was why they were doing better animation cheaper. And I think we we have to face it. It's another country, and they were probably paying their animators squat. 
Mm-hmm. Probably. I don't know this, but I'm just guessing that's how this was done. I, I can't think of any other way or why everything would suddenly be outsourced to other countries, Korea, Japan, to do the animation. I guess it's just because they could do so much more and it cost less. <laughs> oh, yeah. well, th- we're talking about the the uh, the beginning of the outsourcing boon because in that time frame of the 80s, we started importing cars that are being made overseas. Well, we, we, we had started importing them before the 80s, but, you know, we were we were ramping that up to the point where we even had a movie starring Michael Keaton about people who were losing their jobs. And there was a Japanese car company opening a factory in this little small town, America town. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I can't say that there was anything about the animation of Bionic 6 that was really different or stood out from anything that was being produced at that time. Um, it, it was all... You know, all, all I can say it was just so much better than anything America Animation Studios were doing, mm-hmm. and it probably put put them out of business. Mm. Um, uh, what now? Just for an example, there's a lot of explosions in the Bionic Six. <laughs> yeah. Um, you you think you go back and look at explosions on Johnny Quest by Hanna Barbera. And they're so different. It's a completely different thing. There's somehow the explosions in Bionic 6 and cartoons of the time uh, seem to be light and uh, and not even animated somehow. It, it, there's, I guess my point is there's a remarkable difference in the style of animation that became popular at this time. Hmm. Now, before we go on and uh, discuss a little bit about the uh, the best episodes that we previewed here, we can. Uh, I was going to bring back a little nostalgia, and uh, we're going to have a brief break. So I'll go ahead and play our our intermission. So we are just going to take a brief break here. You can uh, take a trip to the little half moon house, maybe refill your beverage, and uh, we'll be back in about 30 seconds or so. Or stay tuned for this commercial, and uh, this is for the some of the merchandising that was so popular then. Uh, these were the toys from Bionic 6. Now, what you won't hear from that commercial is that these toys that came out for the Bionic 6 are very sought after because they were a limited run and they only came out after the show had already been canceled. Talk about timing. Mm. 
and uh, they were made by a well-known toy company, LJN, and they were fairly high quality. They had some parts that were metal, and there were parts that were clear plastic, and they lit up. So when the Bionic 6 activated their powers, they would glow, and uh, they were super posable, and they came with vehicles. So uh, if you do a search for the Bionic 6 toys nowadays, they're fetching a pretty penny for your childhood memory. All right. So let's talk about this a little more. Everything changed after Star Wars in 77, 76, um, because here came a movie, and then very shortly thereafter, a rush of toys that were snapped up even before they made them. <laughs> uh, and uh, they were small and posable and articulated. Now, flashback to when I was a kid. The only toy uh, for young boys was a 12-inch doll called G.I. Joe. It was articulated. It was posable. It was 12 freaking inches high. <laughs> now, uh, why they thought this would be good, I, I don't know. But but when they came out with the 70s line of toys and ever thereafter, uh, the other thing that made them popular was, uh, well, G.I. Joe uh, was reinvented. Uh, no more of this 12-inch doll thing. They were now, what, DJ, four inches high? Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay, and uh, and and uh, like the Star Wars toys were the same. And uh, after that, uh, they were all about that size, including the Bionic 6. But here's the thing. The <laughs> merchandising for Star Wars was so freaking successful that everything that came out after that, people were thinking merchandise, merchandise. Toys, 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 toys. Star Wars changed everything. It's really difficult to say <laughs> often uh, what came first with these cartoons that came along. Did, did someone probably said, well, let's make a cartoon that has a lot of cars and motorcycles and weird gadgets <laughs> because we can make toys of them and sell them. And uh, let's not just have a couple of characters. Let's have a lot of characters. The Bionic Six, a family of six. Uh, plus, you got your villain and like four or five henchmen of villain. And they were all made into toys. It wasn't just Bionic Six. It was G.I. Joe, the cartoon, and so many others. God, Transformers, Robot Tech. Oh, God, I can't even think of them all. But they all had toys. They went hand in hand and quite often uh, a comic book. And, you know, in the 80s, uh, we started seeing things coming in reverse, too, because uh, part of the story of the He-Man series was they developed a toy and there was such appeal for the toy that they just fast-tracked and they wanted a cartoon. So they didn't even have the story of the character. They just wanted the toys out on the shelf and they sort of wrote the story around the toys. <laughs> uh, the, 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 
Yeah, that's what I meant was like sometimes it's hard to, to figure out what came first, the toy or the cartoon. Uh, there was something called Rom Space Knight. Hmm. I think it was a toy. And uh, they went right to Marvel Comics Group and said, make a comic book of this. That was very common. Uh, DC and Marvel Comics Group just were doing comics of, of these toys uh, at that time, some more popular than others. I can't even count how many. There were just so many. Now, DJ, I didn't know that about the Bionic 6. Uh, that uh, this was a two-season cartoon, right? And about how many episodes? I would say 60-some. Okay, so that's kind of, that's a lot. Uh, uh, and you say the, car- the the toys came out like after the cartoon was kind of dead. Yeah, it it was certainly poor timing. Now, um, going back a little bit, we talked about the fact that several of the people in the voice cast for Bionic 6 had previously worked on the $6 million man and the Bionic Woman. Well, um, if you look up the very first TV movie that was done after the Bionic Woman went off the air, they returned the $6 million man and the Bionic Woman. Mm -hmm. That came out in 87 so um you know some feelers uh out there i think that bionic 6 might have been a test market to see if the audience was still there for a bionic storyline before they did the movies ah okay interesting that could very well be yeah uh what dj saying is is uh, uh the six man down man the bionic woman had their heyday in the 70s they went away and then in the 80s you know nostalgia being what it was somebody said we should bring these characters back for a reunion movie which was very common at that time <laughs> tv movies, TV movies yeah. <laughs> and i just remember since this is my childhood we're talking about uh you know he-man was a toy first and then a cartoon and then of course we had to sell toys to girls so they created his sister she-ra now Personally, I mean, this is telling you a little bit about the side that my uh, bread is buttered on. But um, uh, when I was a kid, I had a friend that lived down the street and I was very jealous of her because like a lot of families in the 80s, both of her parents worked. Now, the thing that was special about her was that she was an only child. I'm the youngest of four and... I had only one parent that was able to work. So when I went over to my friend's house, she had all of the toys from She-Ra. I watched the show with her and she had more than one game system. So she was my favorite friend to hang out. with. <laughs> uh, well, when I was a kid, I indeed did have a, uh, uh, one of, in the line of the G.I. Joe dolls. I didn't have G.I. Joe himself. I had his best friend, Ben. <laughs> mm-hmm. I remember he had a scar on his face. And I think I said before in this program, uh, somehow Ben lo- lost his clothing and I forever, forever played with him as a naked doll. <laughs> he was a naturist by hobby. Oh, goodness. <laughs> uh, somehow in, in my head, he became a superhero who could fly. Uh, he lost his G.I. Joe identity pretty 
pretty fast. <laughs> Anyways, let's get into the episodes that you and I watched. Oh, yes. Now, this, and, is, this yeah. is something we're going to call moments you shouldn't miss. So we watched a handful of the best the uh, the fan the uh, fan voted basically best episodes of the series. Now, Toppy, which one did you think uh, you you like the most? Okay, well, I, I absolutely for sure like the episode from season two. It was episode thirty six. It was called "A Super Bunch of Guys." I thought it was clever. I laughed at the comedy involved in in the. Uh, the way they made fun of superheroes and supervillains. Um, and uh, basically, uh, uh, there's a, a parallel dimension that they, they stumbled into uh, that involved a world where there were tons of superheroes who were just aching to have something to do because they were just a world of superheroes that had nobody to put in jail. <laughs> and uh, and uh, then uh, basically, um, it, it, by the end of the show, uh, they had merged a, a, a dimension of supervillains in, <laughs> into the world of supervillains, and everyone lived happily ever after. But they had so much fun making, you know, fun of the... Uh, the superhero genre by by having nutty crazy uh names and superpowers and it was just a very clever story so that was my favorite okay well um i have a favorite but i also want to make an honorable mention because uh, one of our listeners who happens to have a podcast of his own secretly timid and john from secretly timid commented that one of his favorite episodes was from season one it was episode 15 called youth of consequences and basically the story is that mom and dad go on a vacation and of course because they are hiding their identities they told them not only not to have a party but don't have a party because people will find out who we are. Right. And uh, it, it's just the quintessential 80s story because there are so many movies from that time frame, including one of my favorites, Weird Science with Kelly LeBrock. Um, they have a party while mom and dad are out of the house. So actually, I'd have to say that that's a close second favorite for me because it was just a fun watch. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, the, the party gets crashed and uh, spoiler uh, some of the uh, the villains henchmen find themselves invited to the family home. Right. That that was a I enjoyed that one too. Yeah, but I I would say that probably my favorite episode is the one that should have been the pilot. Now, ten episodes into the first season, they decide, yeah, we have this story and it's it's a good episode. Okay, we already aired a first episode, so we'll just throw this into the pile episode 10 was bionics on the first adventure and this was basically a flashback they're uh, they're having an evening at home and the father jack tells the story about how they went on the ski trip and they became bionic now in all honesty i think that this should have been the very first episode but because Bionic 6 is a little bit more geared towards young people, it was probably a little bit too 
dramatic for that to be the first take of, of the adventures. Possibly. I'll tell you what is more likely. This was not an unusual thing to do. Origins series can be a little slow and cumbersome because you've got to put in a lot of backstory and explain everything. And a lot of times producers will think, ah, oh, this is just too slow. It's too lumbering. Let's burst out of the gate with a great story. And a lot of times in a lot of different media, comic books, cartoons, television series, they will just burst out with a show and then come back in sometime later with the origin story because origin stories are a little clunky and slow. Hmm. Okay, so just jump right into the action. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, yeah, so those are moments you shouldn't miss. Now, unfortunately, Bionic 6 never had an official film or uh, video release so if you're like me and toppy and you uh, go to some of those gatherings of our your nerd family uh, convention sometimes there are some folks that make it their hobby to share their favorite childhood memories so you might find unofficial copies <laughs> right well let's talk about like uh, this is just my impression i think it's probably true Bionic 6 never had the popular appeal of, of, say, those seemingly endless G.I. Joe cartoons with Cobra and all that jazz. Um, or, or, or you, you know, certainly not. I mean, He-Man was hugely popular. Uh, the Thundercats, hugely popular. Oh, yeah. I'm getting the impression that the Bionic 6, even though it lasted two seasons and a lot of episodes... It just never it just never seemed to grab hold like those other cartoons. And it was a syndicated series. So uh just like Toppy was saying that when he was a little guy, you know, there was a Saturday morning scheduled program. Bionic Six didn't necessarily have a regular time slot or station. So depending on where you lived, you may have seen it different times. I remember seeing it on TBS. You know, that uh, station that aired the wacky uh, first made for non-network TV show. Um, Captain Planet? No, uh, this is the uh, a show that I uh, introduced you folks to last year, Down to Earth, about the angel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyways, TBS also aired Bionic 6. And then later on, I believe the Sci-Fi Channel aired in their early days, which... Before Sci-Fi Channel started making their own original content, some of the programs that they often reran were the Bionic Woman. Mm -hmm. I gotta say, DJ, for whatever reason, uh, when after we announced we were going to do the Bionic Six on Matinee Minutia, uh, I saw more Twitter response of people who said, oh, God, I remember that show. I watched that show than anything else we've ever done. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, clearly people did watch and do remember Bionic 6 fondly. And uh, I can see why. Let, let's just talk before, before we have to end what made it a little special. Um, in, in my opinion, it was a family, although – 
they don't ever really say so. Obviously, there's different nationalities and races in this family. I assume, you know, they they were adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, it was more like um, more like a found family. And um, they got along. And, and it, I think what what really sold it was that this was a family, a family of adventurers and explorers. Yeah, and it, it fell right into place with a lot of the themes from the 80s TV shows at the time. Because, of course, you get things like different strokes where, you know, they were uh, a black brother, uh, well, younger brother and older brother that were adopted by their mother's employer. And then you get uh, all these shows where it had two working parents like, uh, oh, you get Growing Pains and you get Valerie, which later became the Hogan family. So it was all about families doing well in the 80s because both parents were working and when you were doing well for yourself what did you do well you brought somebody else into your home you adopted someone to help them out in life right so let's see if we can just for fun pinpoint the superpowers that they all had let's mm-hmm. start with the, the dad bionic one now he, he seemed to certainly have strength and speed and agility mm-hmm. uh, all those things combined uh, the wife she seemed to be uh, more psionic like she seemed to have uh, telepathy or or she could project images yeah like holograms yeah yeah um, what was the other? I, one kid had a baseball bat, and he was a fanatic about baseball. Yeah, they call him Sport One, of course. <laughs> right, <laughs> and the um, the the uh, adopted kid from Africa, uh, JD. He was, I I think he was a runner. He he, he seemed to be like the smarty pants, mm-hmm. like he had the brains. And then there was this sister, and uh, I wasn't her name Meg. I think so. And she like seemed to have the super speed, right? Yeah, and she she also had. Um, well, she was into music, so of course she she had that as her weapon. She had these things that were mounted on her shoulders that were like cannons, and uh, her. You know, everyone had their own sort of a catchphrase kind of like in Batman where you had pow and zam and bing and boom. Well, these folks, when they use their powers, they would say things like Meg would say rock on and then she would activate her sonic blasters that are on her shoulders. Right. <laughs> also, they had a, a keen transformation sequence that sometimes they all did together at once, or sometimes it was individual, but uh, they, they all had a ring, I guess, and they would, to act to, to to become more than 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 human or mortal or to activate their bionics, they would plug the ring uh, that was on one hand and they would shove their fist and ring into their other wrist, making you know some sort of contact and uh, completing a circuit. I don't know, and then they would have this you know very visual transformation. <laughs> You know what I find interesting about the transformation, Toppy? Mm. If you think about the way they're posing with that stance, it looks a lot like a karate maneuver. Yeah, yeah. And, I, 
Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, leave it to a Japanese animation house to put the characters into a karate stance for their transformation, a la later on Power Rangers. <laughs> right. So, uh, uh, when uh, it wasn't as much a part of this show as other much more manga-looking cartoons from Japan. But you would see it in the show where they would leap and do a double black back uh, forward flip. They'd have one extended leg and they would like just do this flying kick to the jugular vein of the villain. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, the, a lot of the, the manga cartoons uh, would take that to the extreme. We we didn't see it in Bionic Six. It was a little more Americanized, but uh, the fighting fantasy sequences were kind of extreme. By the way, speaking of which, in particularly the origin story, <laughs> let's talk about the violence of the cartoon. <laughs> um, it looked to me like the producers said, okay, we can have about five punches, but after that, everybody has to be picked up and thrown into a mountain. Right? Right. <laughs> uh, but I mean, that origin story at the beginning, there is a villain on top of Bionic One, one and he's just smashing his fists into the head of Bionic One. Mm -hmm. And that ain't no throwing somebody into a I mean, that was pretty damn violent. Uh, but you can, it you can have your heroes getting beat up, but they can't be violent. Maybe that was it. Uh, <laughs> but 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 that's that's a a reflection of a committee of parents going to the American government and saying our cartoons are too violent. That's what that's mm, all about. True. Now let's not forget one of the most splendid things about this show the setting for the family home. It was a seaside home and it was like a Frank Lloyd Wright house. And they had a secret lair underneath. <laughs> very true. Very true. And of course that's where they had all of their jets and food, you know, this vehicle and that vehicle and, and, you know, training rooms and whatever they had, they had everything. Oh, and they had to have a jet of course. And it came out from the ocean floor and it was called sky dancer. <laughs> Now, here's here's just one of the things that drives me crazy about cartoons of this ilk. They're so freaking noisy. <laughs> I mean, there is background music, there's explosion sound effects, everyone seems to be yelling, not talking. And I, I guess everybody thought if we don't do this, we'll lose little kitty's attention or something, mm -hmm. but it's not just this cartoon. It's, it, it went on to like uh, the cartoons that went into the movies or uh, things for young kids and even, you know, movies uh, uh, today. They just seem to be so noisy. Uh, <laughs> and this one was too. Uh, any, any, 
any thoughts about that? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sure that it was certainly to keep their attention span because, you know, we were shoveling the sugar into the kids in the 80s. And um, right on that same note, you know, we were talking about how so many of these shows had marketing and they had some sort of a a, a product that it was pushing. Well, uh, in 87, along with the cartoons, you had your boatload of sugary cereals. And in 87... <laughs> We had Fruit Islands cereal that came out. Now, that kind of, when I looked at it, because I didn't remember it, maybe I just didn't get it in my house. It reminded me of Cookie Crisp, and instead of little chocolate chips, it had little fruity speckles. I don't remember that cereal either. Oh, well, I'm sure that uh, it probably didn't live for very long, because if you look up Fruit Islands cereal, the commercials are somewhat offensive especially if you're anyone of the south pacific persuasion because uh, uh, it basically makes fun of hawaiian people oh, okay um but there is also fruity marshmallow crispies in 87 <laughs> i already have diabetes <laughs> <laughs> and then there is ice cream cone cereal you had these little uh, bits in your cereal that look like ice cream cones and of course they came in chocolate chip and vanilla mm-hmm. and this, this next one dj really makes me want to barf up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that this is a precursor. I think that later on they probably just changed the name on the box because a lot of these cereals started off as something and then they just changed the name to change the image. But Smurf Magic Berries, which I think later on probably became Captain Crunch Crunch Berries. Oh, I'm going to say uh, no to that because Captain... Captain Crunch Crunchberries was along way before before that cereal. So I would say it's the other way around. They 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 just probably just said, Oh, Crunchberries is selling great. Let's, you know, do something just like it, but call it Smurf Magic Berries. Uh, so we're gonna go on to our snack train a moment. Things that you might like if you like Bionic Six, but I was just gonna end this part by saying I distinctly remember in my youth laying in the living room on my Thundercat sleeping bag. Yes, I've got to dig that out of storage because it's fetching coin on eBay. And I remember sitting there with probably the box, not a bowl, of Cinnamon Toast Crunch because, hey, the whole cereal is sparkly and speckled with sugar and cinnamon. (laughs) That's right. Now, does that mean that you were eating it out of the box, like Uh, dry? Probably. Okay. Well, uh, you know, we should uh, just to comment more on that. This was part of the Saturday morning ritual because these cartoons would start coming on pretty early, like about 7 a.m., definitely by 8. And, well, it's being the weekend. I know my brother and I were always up before my parents and, um, and uh, our ritual, my brother and I would wake up, go downstairs, turn on the TV, of course. And there were some, uh, before the networks kicked in, there was local programmings, uh, the Cisco kid. And I don't know what all the Lone Ranger, blah, blah, blah. And then the, the networks would kick in with the cartoons and we would start to get hungry. So we'd, we'd run into the kitchen, pour ourselves a bowl of sugary cereal mm-hmm. and sit on the floor, munching our cereal, watching the cartoons. And, you know, that is pretty much what kids are 
all over America did. And it's nice to know that you kids were still doing it when you uh, were watching cartoons, except apparently you didn't, you didn't have milk. I didn't bother with the bowl. Uh, but that was a, yeah, that was, a, that was a real thing. I, I distinctly remember too, wiping my sugary hands all over that sleeping bag. Uh, oh Lordy. And did you sit on the floor? I did. Now it, it was very trippy toppy because uh, this was the, this was the first time my family had moved that I was old enough to remember it. So I was like in first or second grade or whatever. But I just remember that in the eighties, my parents had specially picked out this carpet for their new living room. It was marbleized with blue and white, and it looked like ocean sea foam. <laughs> No. <laughs> so very inspiring to a child's imagination. I'm sure. So now we're about to go into our related recommendations, our snack tray. You can eat that. So if you like Bionic 6, I've got a couple of things that I would like to tell you that right. might be right up your alley. So just a handful of years after Bionic 6, and I was talking to Toppy about this behind the curtain, is uh, a series that was done, and I, I watched it on TBS. It ran for a few years, and it was called Captain Planet. And this was about kids from the corners of the globe, each from different cultures, and they each had a superpower based on caring for the environment the elements, earth, wind, fire, and water. And when they came together, their powers formed a champion who would battle on behalf of the earth. And this was a series that ran, oh, five, I want to say four or five years, started off with uh, the voice talents of Whoopi Goldberg. Later on, it had uh, Margot Kidder. And there is just a, uh, a, just a marathon list of voice talents that appeared over the years in guest roles, including people like Gene Hackman. Wow. And uh, one other show that I would recommend to you, I think it was in the early 90s, on the vibe of being a family story, because Bionic 6 was about a future family. Uh, there was a little series that was done sort of as a, a nod to the Brady Bunch. It was the continuation of that idea of two families coming together from past marriages, and it starred Patrick Duffy from Dallas, as well as Suzanne Summers, formerly from Three's Company. And it was called Step by Step. Hmm. So those are the two things that I would recommend. It, was that live action? It was live action. It yeah. ran for oh, probably five or six years. Okay. All right. So my recommendations are for uh, thinking along the lines of Bionic 6 is, first of all, yeah, go back and look at the live-action TV shows from the 70s. The uh, $6 Million Man was the first one. Uh, quite popular. It spawned the Bionic Woman, uh, a second series. They ran concurrently for <clears throat> a relatively short amount of time, and uh, both shows ran out of steam, but they had a good long run. And uh, certainly, look at those. It, it was a whole bionic thing. <laughs> um, and the other thing I would say, as far as the look of this animation that was done in Japan, uh, 
um, uh, go back and look at some of the first products that came to America from Japan. Uh, and, and there's many of them. I'll just name two, but Gigantor and Speed Racer, uh, who had a very distinct style that Bionic 6 was still a part of. Years later, I mean, you know, a, a decade and a half or two later. Um, but uh, the, you, you'll see the evolution of this this style of animation. So hard to put in words. The difference was stellar. I mean, there's you, you put an American cartoon and you, you show it against Gigantic Speed Racer. Completely different look. Um, and, uh, that, that became the look, I mean, that, that became the look of American cartoons cause they all went to, um, the Japanese, uh, makers. So uh, those are my, uh, recommendations oh. and, um, uh, we, we've got something in mind next time. We sure do. And just an aside topic, uh, you're talking about bionic woman now, uh, I'd like to give a mention here, a piece of trivia. Some of you may not know, because I don't know if it's on her uh, resume, but one of the bionic women in $6 million man made for TV movies starred an up-and-coming Sandra Bullock in one of her first roles, and it was Bionic Showdown. <laughs> and uh, she played the new bionic girl. She was a wheelchair-bound young woman who was about to have the operation to become bionic and it was also the debut of their new special effects for the bionics where in the past they would slow it down and do the spring noises well now we've got computer technology and they speed it up and blur it and they play the sounds of the wind yeah uh look kids you'd have to experience this to understand what we're talking about let's go back to the six million dollar man uh this is not intuitive folks but this is how they did it uh not from the get-go because there was little uh, not so much of it in the first five or six episodes but the language of showing this bionic action quickly developed into slow motion so you would have a character who's supposed to be moving super fast they would show it in slow motion <laughs> and every time you saw Steve Austin running in slow motion you, you, you were you understood that he's not running in slow motion he's running super fast I don't, don't ask me folks that's just how they did it Mm -hmm. Alrighty, so we're going to go ahead and get out that bag of coins here so we can figure out what we're doing next. Yeah. Get her in there. Ah, out that comes the plastic capsule. DJ, open that up. Let's see what our next topic is. Alrighty, so the next time we get together is in three weeks, because January's a long month this year. It'll be on the first Friday of February. Yes, February, because there's an R in there. Friday, February 7th, of course, at 9 p.m. Eastern. An early to mid 
90s, made-for-television drama, romance miniseries, based upon the sequel to the iconic Gone with the Wind. This stars the witch's daughter from Willow and former 007, Joanne Wally and Timothy Dalton in Scarlet, the miniseries. Miss Scarlet! Miss Scarlet! Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, fascinating. Yes. Uh, uh, in, in the... Uh, uh, I think it'll, well, we will get into it next time. I'm, I was DJ. I'm already so excited, but I'm ready to get into it right now, but we'll wait until next. Thank you all for joining us tonight. And uh, if you'll say good night, Gracie, <sighs> good night, Gracie. Thank you for listening to matinee minutia. Our show streams live on the first and third Friday of the month. Go to univazpods.net, Click the tower for audio, enter discord for chat. You can find our show anywhere you listen to podcasts. Visit our webpage at matineeminutia.com. Tweet us on Twitter at matineeminutia. Find our group on Facebook. Have an idea for a show? Or let us know how we're doing. Email us at matineeminutia at gmail.com. Just gone wild with Matt and Tom. Speak up. The Smellcast. By Tommy Smelly. Be heard. Tastes like burning with Tim and James. Unique voices in podcasting. The Shy Life Podcast. With me, Paul the Shy Yeti.